Hello everyone, it's August 9th, 2022. So Astra is making some changes. They'll be working on that upgrade to Rocket 4 sooner than later. And that's all they'll be doing. No more Rocket 3.3 launches for the next year or two. Rocket 4 is all that matters now. Let's see if we can figure out why. And liftoff. And we clear the tower. Welcome to episode 371 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, see any good uh, documentaries on YouTube lately? <laughs> That's your intro, Dennis. That was natural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely not planned. Yeah, no. Uh, shout out and thank you to Espen Urquidal for uh, putting this on our horizon. Although, or you know, Ben, you certainly would have <laughs> noticed it eventually because of... Uh, yeah, eventually. Yeah, yeah, because it's Real Engineering uh, put out a their first documentary. So we're talking like a good 40-minute video uh, about spin launch. Uh, friends of the show. Uh, not really, but that'd be fun to get them on, actually, because, yeah, there's yeah. so many questions, but Real Engineering kind of already did such a wonderful job addressing all the questions that we certainly had when we were talking about them. So do you think, because I watched the documentary too, and I came away from it feeling a little bit more positively about Spin Launch. Uh, did it change your opinion? Yes. Yeah. Basically, I personally, it moved me to where I'm thinking, I mean, just there's no longer the engineering challenges that are non-starters. There's the ones that we thought were non-starters. I don't think they are anymore. I think they do actually have a concept that they could put into action in principle if they had enough money. Whether or not it's a useful business case, <laughs> that's a very different mm -hmm. uh, story. But yeah, like the video really was just going point by point and addressing the engineering and physical uh, seeming limitations uh, and challenges that they have to overcome. And, and they do it in a, a very clever and creative way I, I think too like one thing they could really close their business case here is that and you put it in the notes is it and this is really cool this just gives you an idea of how cheap electricity is i guess is mm. that it costs yeah. it costs six thousand dollars to spin that thing up for a launch so and you know this is effectively replacing the first stage of a rocket so when you think about it it's like six thousand dollars for a first stage mm -hmm. uh that 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 sounds pretty good to me Be, before refurbishment costs or whatever yeah and, and well and then the six thousand dollars they can get some of that back because obviously they can use regenerative braking and they can sell it back to the grid or keep it i, I don't know what they would do but so it, it's it's actually a pretty good idea as far as that goes i mean they got that going for them and then the g hardening which is i think maybe was one of my biggest concerns because it just doesn't seem it's very non-intuitive that anything could survive those GLOs. But um, one cool part of the video, because I won't give away too much, is that you could even engineer a soda can to withstand 10,000 Gs, which kind of blew my <laughs> mind. You know, yeah. you just have to kind of like corrugate it a little bit and then it's good to go. And I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and they've done these tests, you know, apparently. So things are actually much more capable of withstanding those loads than you would think, with the exception of the reaction wheels on satellites, but they have a way around that too. So Yeah, because yeah, not only do they have the third scale uh, spin launcher that they've actually been heaving some stuff from, uh, but they have their uh, uh, vacuum chamber as well, which they were able to build very, very cheap because they don't need to get to like the kind of uh, NASA level uh, vacuum chambers uh, that, that need to be a much uh, cleaner vacuum. But yeah, that thing, I guess, yeah, they're able to actually start accelerating things up to like 10,000 Gs and <laughs> and see whether or not the things work in principle. Yeah, and I guess the other thing too is if they could bring the cost down, that then I guess makes them kind of direct competitors with traditional launchers. But uh, it seems like the one thing that they could have in principle that no matter how much uh, ground support and rapid launching you want to do as a traditional provider is their cadence 
would be kind of unbeatable, I think, from traditional compared to traditional watching. You know, I I don't know if this is uh, how hot of a take this is, but I feel like launch cadence is overemphasized mm. because everybody talks about you know their launch system being able to have X Y Z cadence, and the only people who have really gotten up to like untraditionally high cadences is SpaceX, which only happens because they Starlink. have a very compliant customer, right? And, and like, so we talk about cadence as like a an upper limit, but we're never, I mean, for right now, we're not going to ever have somebody who's going to reach that upper limit. So like, yeah, I don't know. Like maybe their cadence can be that high. Maybe it can't. And I don't think it really matters. I don't know. I mean, you're probably right, but I think that what matters is that I think launch cadence is more of an indication of launch costs and, you know, the whole simplicity of the system. So it's kind of like saying we could do this, which, which, you uh, yeah. know, should give you an indication of, mm -hmm. you know, how reliable and cheap we are. I think maybe that's what it is. But other than that, yeah. Um, and it might also be, and I think I've said this before that, you know, like if you build it, they will come. So like if you can get a high launch cadence, then mm -hmm. maybe you would have a lot of customers because people would be like, Hey, we can send this stuff up for very little cost. We can do it 10 times a day. Why not? You know, I mean, I don't know what that, what that customer would be. They're kind of like solving a problem or what is it? They have a solution in need of a problem, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a terribly spicy take i, I kind of agree with you too that it's 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 an unknown whether or not it doesn't matter yeah how many times you can spin this thing up and eat something if you don't have the customers for it and would they really have that kind of demand met i don't know but a very cool documentary i really enjoyed it so everyone should watch it mm. i'm sure everyone listening is already subscribed that's how i found it it just popped up <laughs> on my youtube feed So in the news, Rocket 3 is dead. Long live Rocket 4. Mm -hmm. So what company are we talking about? Uh, I guess we didn't say that, but yeah, Astra. Mm -hmm. uh, since, yeah, the names of their rockets are literally just Rocket. Yeah, so did this come out of left field for anyone else? Because I was like, oh, Rocket. I mean, Astra is doing away with its 3.3. And I guess that was just, I mean, they've had a number of failures. Things never really got quite off the ground i mean they did like really, but, you know like <laughs> came back down to the ground i wish i had more insight into what was going on in, in their heads but um it seems like it might be the best decision or is this because this is my first thought this is my not cynical this is my pessimistic take which is it is this them kind of like as i say kicking the can down the road kind of you know like mm -hmm. we can't get this right so we'll say that we're going to do something even bigger and better and then that gives us time to hopefully get things up and going correctly or will that just fail ultimately too uh that's kind of my big question and that's kind of the feeling that i get but i don't know if anyone else feels that way well okay so first off let me um thank delta via 4.3 for saying uh the the headline for this that i then stole i have <laughs> i have to steal with attribution so right so the the news comes out of an announcement that Astra made during its second quarter financial report, which was pretty interesting because they're a publicly traded company. Now they have to um, put out a lot of financial data. And so I, you know, I listen to NPR's planet money, but I'm really not a, <laughs> a finance or a money guy. Um, so I don't understand, you know, I don't instinctually know 
the implications for all of their numbers, but you know, I can look at a table and compare columns. So interestingly, or, or what I find interesting about their financial report is that they doubled their operating expenses comparing uh, six months between years. So this year, the first half of this year versus the first half of last year, they, they doubled their operating expenses. And this year so far, uh, they've had a net loss of 168 million US dollars. Now that's a huge amount of cash for a company of this size, but there are two, two big takes you can have. Um, one is that they're a small company and they're burning through cash because they're doing a lot of work. Uh, and then you can also say, well, they're a small company. There's no way they should be spending this amount of cash. Um, and there's no way they should be spending that amount of cash if they are, um, being a, a good, a good business, you know, kind of like, all right. Um, and then, uh, Dennis, you pulled out another number, which I think is good. Um, they ended the second quarter of 2022 with a hundred, with 201 million dollars, uh, in the bank. It's, it's actually cash equivalents and liquidable assets, uh, like, um, um, stock assets that they can sell off. Um, so just to give you, uh, <laughs> there's another podcast I really like called, um, more or less is the name of the show. Um, and they talk about, uh, statistics in the news. And the first question that they ask every single time they bring up a news item is, is that a big number? And so 1.68 million or uh, 168 million seems like a big number. Is it? And if, you know, if their assets they can actually go out and spend is 200 million, then yeah, that's, that's a big number. And if they didn't bring in more money, they would be, they, they would have spent all their money in what? Three more quarters, I guess, if they're spending mm-hmm. at this rate and not bringing in any more cash. That's how long they can run. Uh, but they are bringing in money. Their revenue for the second quarter or for, for the first half of 2022, their revenue was like $6,000 or something. <laughs> it's kind of a fun, uh, a fun oh, wow. number, <laughs> like a fun, tiny little number. Uh, but earlier this month, um, they announced that they have signed a deal which gives them the option to sell an issue up to a hundred million US dollars, uh, of their stock to a capital firm. So this is a very complicated sentence. Uh, and we can, we can break it down and I think it's going to make a lot of sense. So first off, a capital firm is, is just a company that is there to fund companies. They invest in companies and they make money when those companies do well. The option to sell an issue stock in this case is class A stock, which means that that stock comes with a single vote. Class B stock is usually what people like Chris Kemp own and, uh, it's, you know, worth multiple votes. I think it's usually like 10 votes or something. And so the stock that they're selling off is not a controlling share. It's not the type of stock that is something that somebody who wants to control the company would buy. And so essentially what this is, is saying uh, we have somebody who's willing to invest a hundred million dollars in our company. And it's actually kind of cool that, they, that it's an option, not a done deal. So they don't have to uh, take this money if they don't want to. Taking the money uh, comes 
at a cost because they are uh, potentially issuing new uh, new stocks to to sell. Uh, it means that they will be devaluing their existing stocks. So if their company is broken up into 10,000 shares and they issue 5,000 new shares, well, now when when you have, you know, your slip of paper that says you own one share of the stock, you now own less of the company. So the price goes down if they do that. But, you know, it's the option to sell an issue. They'll probably sell existing shares so they don't devalue. Uh, and then once they've run out of shares to sell or they've hit the point where they don't want to get rid of any more shares, they'll be able to issue additional shares. And then the other thing is that $100 million is their maximum. And that is uh, less than 20% of the existing uh, shares of the company. So even though this capital firm will be buying a lot of shares, potentially, the most that they can own is, is a 20% share of the company. So that's the, that's the finance side of things. Then we can start getting into the interesting side of things from our perspective. So before we get into their launch vehicle, I want to talk about this, uh, the Astra spacecraft engine, um, which we talked about when they, when they acquired Apollo Fusion. Um, but they're, they're, like kind of starting to crank on Astro spacecraft engine. Their financial report says that most of their, most of their revenue is going to be coming from Astro spacecraft engine, which makes sense because they're not going to be making money on rocket 3.3. But they said that this year they commenced deliveries, which is like awesome. Uh, I didn't realize that they were actually starting to put these in people's hands. I wonder how many they've actually sent out. They also said that they have 103 committed orders uh, for engines, and that is, I don't know if that's the total number or if it's just the number for this year. I, I believe that's the total number, but comparing this year to last year, they've had a 69% increase in orders. Oh, actually, no, that's that's Q1 to Q2. They increased their orders by 69%. Um, and that includes the 14 inherited orders from Apollo Fusion contributing to their Q1 order total. And they are now leasing a, uh, a 5.5 square kilometer facility, uh, just to turn into a factory for the spacecraft engine. That was always the thing, even while they're stock is getting hammered and they're struggling to make it to orbit, it always seemed like they had a lot of orders, I guess, and interest. I mean, you know, it's good to diversify and it's not like it's a, you know, just a business tactic like Chris Kemp has, since he's been talking about the company, <laughs> he's been pretty clear that he's like, no, we, you know, it's not just about rockets. Like we want to have this whole system where, you know, kind of a one-stop shop, I guess, the, the Walmart of, of rockets. <laughs> okay, so they decided to retire Rocket 3.3 and launch System 1.0. Uh, so just to wrap up, Rocket 3.3 launched five times and failed three of those five times. Chris confirmed that the Tropics uh, launch failure uh, was due to um, running out of propellant early. And I, I just, I don't know how you run out of propellant early, I guess twice with the same rocket. Yeah. It just seems weird. And so because Rocket 3 is retired, they are going to be doing no more launches in 2022. Um, and they're not even sure if they're going to be doing customer launches in 2023 um, because they're waiting to see how their testing on Rocket 4 goes. 
So since we said Rocket 4, uh, that also comes along with Launch System 2.0. Um, and the, the reason that they are upgrading to Rocket 4, well, they're always going to upgrade to Rocket 4. The reason that they're focusing on it alone and not touching Rocket 3.3 anymore, Chris Kemp says, is because all their customers who, you know, were interested in Rocket 4 said they really would rather fly on a vehicle that had had all of their attention rather than a rocket that had been sharing the company's attention with a different rocket. And, and that seems like, uh, duh. Like, yeah, of course. But I think deep down they, they believe that, you know, Rocket 3 is, you know, really, uh, a, a test bed. It, I don't think it was ever going to be the, the vehicle they were going to go with forever. Um, and I mean, for real, uh, Rocket 3.3, uh, has a, uh, a, a payload capacity of 50 kilograms. Uh, rocket four was going to have a payload, I believe of 300 kilograms. And now it's up to 600 kilograms, um, which is what, what they want to be able to do. Do you know why that is like, a, I was kind of wondering what accounts for that. Like what upgrades mm did they make? Oh, I mean, they probably doubled the size of the rocket. Uh, but the, the driving motivation I'm assuming is to be able to target mega constellation customers. Small rockets seemed like a really good idea very recently. And I think now everybody's just been like so shocked by mm -hmm. all of the mega constellation work that's being done. And I think everybody wants to get on board. And I think we really skipped past the golden age of CubeSats, which is, you know, what mm -hmm. Rocket 3.3 was just amazing for so i my question is as they are upgrading in size are they paying for that extra payload with uh mobility and speed and simplicity are they going to be able to launch rocket 4 with two people are they going to be able to fit rocket 4 into a, a cargo container well they say that they are still going to be able to do that that's what i read um at least in the old rocket four point or 4.0 like the article that was published back in may now since you said that they probably just achieved this you know higher payload to orbit by or this higher mass to orbit by just doubling the size of the rocket i don't know total gas yeah, well, Could be, I yeah because read, i was thinking i'm sorry just before we say that again i just did read though that they were upgrading the engines and so okay. i don't know how much of it is just increasing the size if they're supposed to be very responsive and we can launch anywhere, then obviously the size could be an issue in that case. Yeah. But I mean, that probably accounts for some of it. So yeah, you could, cause if they up, if they upgrade the engines, then that presumably wouldn't be a much larger rocket, just, you know, better engines, but it probably still is a little bit larger too. Oh, I'm sure. So yeah. the engine change, that's from rocket 3.3, right? Did they, did they go up? Did they say that they were going to go for a bigger engine than the, than the first? 70,000 pound engine. I'm finding here, um, they're going to go from five Delphins for 3.3 to a pair of those larger 70,000 pound ones on 4.0. But the question is, are, have those been upgraded, those 70,000 pound ones, mm. to account for this doubling of mass to orbit? Or are they just going to have four engines now or something like that and just make a bigger rocket? So the article that you're quoting is from Space News. The headline is Astro Reveals Details of Next Larger Rocket. And mm -hmm. that version of Rocket 4 was a 300 kg payload. So they've doubled from that. Oh, okay. And yeah, so I don't I don't know what changed from 
that Rocket 4.0 to the Rocket 4.0 uh, point 0.1 that they're talking about now. See, I missed I miss that. I thought you were talking about Rocket 3.3 to Rocket 4. But you're talking about Rocket 4 to Rocket 4. Yeah. Yeah, because because Rocket Three had a had a payload of fifty kilograms. So uh, the chat is saying that that the six hundred kilograms is like an end of end of cycle kind of number. Um, so not what they're going to do on the first launch, but what they're you know the maximum that they're going to achieve as they as they continue to tweak it. I don't think that they're going to be able to tweak a double out of this. So I think they're already starting at a higher number. What do you guys think? Well, do you think like maybe they were just being very conservative the first time when they said 300? Um, no, I don't. And now, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't think so mm-hmm. either. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can stretch your rocket and, you know, consider it a, a, a not major upgrade. Like, you know, you can stretch a rocket and, and stay within the rocket four paradigm, uh, which happened with, with rocket three, you know, but and happened with uh, Falcon 9. But you're not gonna you're not gonna double your payload capacity doing that. Like if you're gonna double your payload capacity, we're talking about adding additional engines. So I, I don't think I don't think I buy the idea that their first launch is gonna be that far away from 600. Oh, Delta V nailed it. Uh, on their website, they say we are now contracting dedicated launch services for payloads up to 500 kilograms uh, to a 500 kilometer mid inclination low Earth orbit. There you go. Uh, so. 500 and then they'll be able to increase it up to 600 that's way more reasonable it's still a big increase but that's mm, reasonable not a factor of two that's that's a 20 yeah. percent increase yeah it's huge but doable so thank you to delta v and deskin in our chat for being on the research thank you guys <laughs> so in the space news article i was like i just and i rarely do this but i glanced down at the little chat or uh, little comments and it said someone had mentioned something called the osborne effect which i never heard of but apparently it's when a customer is looking forward to the next version as opposed to the current one and so they don't want to pay for like what you have now like the current product they want the new one um and that could have a negative effect on your business i don't think mm. that that's exactly what's happening here but i thought it was kind of funny that they had mentioned that because it does seem to be the case that you know they have this rocket 3.3 and everyone's like yeah but we want rocket 4 <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and but i think that's mostly just because they've had several failures and so at this point maybe mm-hmm. confidence is waning well then you, you 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 quoted two out of five for rocket 3.3 and if you go to the earlier rockets it's i think two out of nine that were successful which oh yeah two out immediately of nine. They, they were gonna you know yeah. fail off and was kind of built into it but i mean two out of nine yeah. that's yeah, well, that's the other thing. Didn't they say that they expected something like a ninety percent success rate? Like that was what they were aiming for. But and that's like, I mean, that's like their operational goal is like ninety percent. But that doesn't make sense to me because that's really still not good. I mean, think of the customer and they're like, okay, our payload has a nine in ten chance of making it to orbit. I feel like I would want better odds than that, at least this day and age with launch companies. But I might have read that wrong. But that seemed kind of crazy to me that they were aiming for nine out of ten um, or nine. I mean, I guess it depends on how you qualify a failure and a success so maybe you know partial failure and they get it to orbit i don't know but that doesn't seem great so i can see why customers want the new one and hopefully they're aiming for a higher success rate and any and anything that's a unique payload you know and not just just a uh part of a mega constellation i feel like you would not want to put on something with a 90 percent right. chance of right. success <laughs> i mean i guess it depends on how how cheap the launch is you know if it's a free launch people would totally 
go with, you know, 50-50 odds. You know, if your if your launch is expected to be, you know, 50% of your of your mission budget, like, yeah, sure. And then the other thing you said about skipping the small set era, because that does seem to be happening, is in what's accounting for that? Is it just that things got small for a minute and then the cost of orbit got cheaper? So it was like, well, let's go big again? Yeah, I th- I think that's a really interesting dynamic that you're describing. I mean, that's my guess. Is it as launch costs come down, why would you fly something super small when you don't have to anymore? And so since there are launch providers who can do it for in, you know, the smaller launch providers are kind of like left in the dust because there are companies that can launch larger payloads for, you know, still a fairly low price. My take is I think it's, I still think they, that there's still plenty of small launches or small uh, satellites, you know, that they want to put that there's demand for those going on orbit. It's just that unless you need a customized, tailored, you know, BLT orbit or something, then just put it on a Falcon 9 transporter mission and save your money and don't bother with these other things. That's as I, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> so it, it's, it's so those, you know, something like a Falcon 9 or what the Neutron will do, they can handle the mega constellations and ride shares and just kind of beat the market. So let's do three short and sweet. Dennis, what's the first? First up, Russian satellite might be snooping in orbit. Cosmos 2558, recently launched from Placitsk Cosmodrome on a Soyuz rocket, was rumored to be a so-called inspector spacecraft prior to liftoff. Launched into the same sun-synchronous orbital plane as USA-326, aka Enroll-87, the two made a relatively close approach of about 75 kilometers, or 47 miles, after several days in orbit. USA-326 had recently ejected a new object that is also being tracked from the ground, either a subsatellite or a piece of debris. This encounter echoes the last time a Russian inspector spacecraft maneuvered within 160 kilometers or 100 miles of USA 245 in early 2020. Next up, next bit of Russian news, Russia remains on station. During a SpaceX Crew-5 mission briefing, Sergei Krikalev, executive director of human spaceflight programs at Roscosmos, clarified Russia's current stance on its presence aboard the ISS. Claiming that perhaps something was initially lost in translation, Krikalev pointed out that Russia will not pull out of the program until after 2020. 24, meaning that the final year of Russian presence on station remains still undetermined. NASA Associate Administrator Kathy Lawyers also confirmed that Congress passed an authorization bill that formally approves extension of ISS operations until 2030. Uh, finally, possible secret Chinese space plane. China's Xinhua News Agency confirmed the successful launch of a Long March 2F on August 4th, stating that the spacecraft will operate in orbit for a period of time before returning to its landing site. This was suggested a space plane similar to the U.S. Air Force X-37B. Um, the Long March 2F has a launch capacity of 8 metric tons, which also suggests a payload similar to the mass of X-37B. A previous test of an experimental reusable spacecraft took place in 2020. Uh, that spacecraft spent two days in orbit before returning to its landing site, though no photos or further details have been released since then. Yep. We, we all know it's an X-37B. I want photos and further details. Yeah. I know. Yeah. (laughs) I want those photos and further details as well. Yeah. 
So this week in spaceflight history, we have four winners, uh, Michael Freeman, Fonji Ricola, Hydrek, and Deskin Miller. And the clue was partial power picture. My guess was something to do with a maybe a space telescope or something that wasn't mm. quite working the way it should be. But this was in, what was the year? Okay, yeah, this was in 1959. So I guess this is going back a little bit further than that. So maybe like the, not a, not a telescope. I think actually my guess was a some kind of like a very early satellite that was taking images of Earth and doing so under partial power. So how close was I? <laughs> yeah, you got, you got, alarmingly close on air live last week and so good job oh i didn't i didn't know i said that on air i thought maybe i cut that out okay whoops. Oh, no, no, no. well i mean i consider anything i i sorry i consider all of this on air even the stuff okay true cut out. yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah no great job you really nailed it and um so yeah so uh all the winners got full or rather all the winners got bonus points for you know describing it correctly and the greek i gotta give uh the greek uh partial credit um, because they picked an event which, crazily enough, happened the same year, the same week, and this was Discoverer 5, and it was an early uh, keyhole uh, Corona, I think, uh, spacecraft, and it had all sorts of issues with, uh, basically, it was, it was not, its photographs were not recovered. And so the fact, though, that it, it, it could have fit that clue partial power picture, so I got to give partial credit to the Greek for that. A partial power credit, I guess. But... <laughs> The, <laughs> that was a the, sentence. <laughs> yeah. So the event was August 14th, 1959, and it was when Explorer 6 took the first image of Earth from orbit. And so this was something that was actually put on my uh, horizon, I think, last year when uh, NASA History tweeted it out. And uh, I was like, oh, this would be like, this could make a fun twist if, because uh, it's really early spaceflight, as you're saying, Dave, right? 1959. So we're going all the way, all the way back there. And so this was a, uh, a, a small satellite that was built by uh, JPL and TRW. And it was actually the first scientific satellite managed by Goddard Space Flight Center. And so this was be the start of them, uh, I guess, cutting their chops in space operations before they then start to manage the, you know, Mercury, uh, Gemini program, so on. Uh, the main uh, scientific instruments on uh, the spacecraft, and there was a good, you know, seven or eight of these. And it was the uh, kind of radio wave and particle detectors that uh, you typically have for studying you know, near space environment, and the Earth's magnetic field and all that good stuff. And so there's lots of science that came out of it. It was a successful mission. That's great. On August 7th, we got to go back a week uh, from the uh, actual event. It was launched uh, from uh, Cape Canaveral on a Thor Able, so one of these uh, combo rockets that looks like a uh, uh, an electric toothbrush. And obviously from the name, Explorer 6 means it was part of the Explorer program, right? Very early on in there. And so uh, just again, a reminder that we've gone all the way up to Explorer 97 now. And so a lot of well-known spacecraft are actually Explorer blanks, you know, with a different number designations. So that includes, I just grabbed some, some of the, the real big hits in recent, you know, years, uh, WMAP, which I guess is not terribly recent, but, uh, New Star, Test, or sorry, Tess Icon, which took forever. I remember that getting delayed and delayed and delayed until they finally launched on a Pegasus. And then, uh, XP, which is, uh, Explorer 97. And so very good, fun heritage there. And so uh, Explorer 6 gets launched on this Thor Able, uh, sent to a highly uh, elliptical orbit. And so we're talking 237 kilometers by 41,900 kilometers. And so that's a 12 and a half hour period orbit. And so it really, really would go out there and then come back. And the spacecraft, uh, this is actually important for 
the uh, Twisif uh, event, that it was spin stabilized at 2.8 rotations per second. Okay, and so to give you an idea of what it looks like, this is a sphere. It's a, uh, I think it was 65 kilogram sphere, um, so you know, not terribly big, uh, and it had uh, these four solar cell paddles sticking out of it on the four sides uh, along the equator, I guess. And um, they gave it the name the Paddle Wheel Satellite, was I guess its nickname in, uh, in, in some videos. Like I found this absolutely delightful video uh, of it being launched. Um, and, you know, it's got that kind of old-timey accent narrator talking about it. And, uh, I mean, this is, this is so old, they're referring to it as, you know, a moon. I guess before sat, you know, we talked to, <laughs> we refer to satellites as moons, artificial moons mm -hmm. being put on orbit. But yeah, so these paddles, they're sticking out and they're all, um, angled relative to each other. So it kind of looks like a weather vane almost. It's a very funky looking, uh, spacecraft. And, uh, part of the clue, uh, the partial power in the partial power picture clue was that one of those, uh, paddles did not fully deploy. And, um, there was an issue where they were supposed to happen, uh, deploy before they started spinning up the spacecraft and they did not uh, it was they were actually deploying during spin up and as a result that i guess in some way kind of screwed up the one cell so it was only operating at 63% power and decreasing over time and so uh to kind of go ahead a little bit it was only going to really be usefully on orbit for a uh, a couple months really it had um Two antennas on there, one for uh, VHF, one for UHF, uh, the former being for uh, analog signals and the latter for uh, any digital signals, as well as the uh, only non-sort of uh, radio or particle or micrometeorite scientific uh, experiment on board, the TV camera. Uh, it had the TV, uh, TV optical scanner instrument. And so this was uh, actually an improved version of uh, a TV scanner that was on Pioneer 2. And it consists of a concave spherical mirror and a uh, phototransistor, a video amplifier to, you know, boost the signal and then, uh, you know, the circuits that are needed to get this all to work. And the idea was to actually have this go and test uh, some, uh, and take low resolution images of uh, daylit cloud covers uh, over the Earth. Since this is, again, spinning at just under three uh, rotations per second, so that's pretty, pretty quick. The TV camera was aligned 45 degrees from the spin axis. So it'd be basically sweeping out uh, a cone and so, and taking advantage of the rotation of the spacecraft. And so what would happen is it would, uh, as the spacecraft, as the spacecraft revolved, it would sweep, you know, across the earth and that would be uh, one scan spot. And then the next time it rotates around, it would scan an adjacent spot because now the spacecraft has moved in its orbit and moved in the other direction. So that's basically how it builds up uh, a two-dimensional image from a series of scans. Um, you know, just like uh, uh, TVs used to, uh, you know, cathode ray tubes, but now just doing it from orbit in this kind of way. And so they would do this until you got uh, 64 such uh, uh, scans uh, spots. And then, yeah, and then you'd have an image. And so with that setup, we had the very first image of Earth from space, uh, or rather from, I should say, from an orbital spacecraft. Uh, some suborbital ones had taken images as well. H have you guys seen this image before? Uh, I don't think so. So the first thing I think of when I see it, right, so it's, it's, it's a black backdrop, and then it, it almost looks like a musical note of white. Yeah. 
that's very kind of uh, stringy in one direction. And so what it is, is it's, it's basically clouds uh, over the uh, North Central Pacific Ocean. And so uh, this was taken from the spacecraft while it was physically uh, above Mexico, uh, 27,000 uh, kilometers above Mexico. And so uh, it, at that you know, distance and with this kind of technology, it took uh, basically 40 minutes of sending the signal to uh, a ground station in Hawaii. And um, another neat thing about the image, uh, which I realized, right, we're, we are doing a podcast, so not really the best medium for talking about images, but I, I recommend you go check this out just because it's not only historic, but there's also something that you could easily miss. And you can, in fact, see the limb of the Earth if you go and look towards the bottom right of the frame. It's very faint. Uh, the the ocean is very dark, but um, actually looks darker than the Earth. But that's just, or sorry, darker than space behind it. But that's just I'm sure some uh, contrast effect uh, happening. So a good old piece of history. And uh, yeah, so as for the fate of the spacecraft, actually it's actually kind of funny. <laughs> the story does go a little further. Um, but yeah, one of the two transmitters failed uh, on September 11th. So. Uh, about a month after the launch, and then they had last contact about a month later in October. But a few days after that, so October 6th was last contact, um, less than a, or a week later on the 13th, uh, we decided to do an ASAT test, an anti-satellite test, and basically launch a bold Orion missile at it. And it wow. was designed to miss, um, but they, I mean, this is 1959, so these are early days of it, but yeah. And they went after this this iconic piece of uh you know space uh, uh hardware up there and yeah and this missile came within four miles or 6.4 kilometers of it explorer six then spent another couple of years before uh you know its perigee was pretty close uh 237 uh, kilometers initially so eventually it decayed and uh deorbited random little uh uh end uh, thing to end on right like oh and by the way then there was a random asat test uh after <laughs> asats were kind of all the rage it seems yeah well that was a cool story those very very early years of taking images of the earth from space yeah they really are they look every bit as black and white as the tv was mm -hmm. like if you watch that little video that you posted which yeah people should check out they do talk on that old-timey accent it's it's just kind of exactly what you would expect from a satellite from that era too all right and so let's move on to next week all right so next week is the 16th of august through the 22nd of august and ben do you have a clue for us yeah so uh next week in 1993 the clue is missing top all right, I don't, I don't have any leads on this one. I, I, nothing's coming to mind, so um, I'll just leave that up to the listeners to decide mm -hmm. or to guess. And if you think you have a guess, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's do just three upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, not as many as last week, but at least not more than the week before that. <laughs> I don't know how I'm keeping track of this, but uh, the ebb and flow of uh, rocket launches. <laughs> so, what is the first one, Ben? So, this first one is a Falcon 9 Block Five launching Starlink Group 426. Presumably another 53. I, I don't know if these numbers are continuing to change, but that's what Launch Library 2 says. Uh, and this is going to be uh, launching. They've got an instantaneous launch window right now, but uh, Space Force issued a weather prediction uh, that has a window. But I believe that the window is just for the validity of their forecast. So we expect this to be flying on Tuesday, August 9th at 2259 hours UTC. So that's within a couple of hours of the show coming out. So you'll have to be li listening to the show pretty quick if you're going to forget about it and then be reminded <laughs> by us. Um, it's going to be flying out of Kennedy Space Center, uh, Slick 39A. And then same day... Uh 
late in the evening, uh, we got a pretty cool, fun uh, suborbital launch. Talk about too many of those on here, but yeah, this will mm, be a fun yeah. one. And um, this, again, is August 9th as well. But this is going to be a, a student uh, experiment taken up on a, a Terrier-improved Malamute sounding rocket uh, launching out of Wallops. And so uh, this is... Uh, uh, students from the from the Colorado Space Grant Consortium. They're going to be taking this payload RockSat-X uh, up to 91 miles uh, altitude where it's going to be exposed to space. It got a bunch of experiments on board and then it's going to splash down in the Atlantic under parachute afterwards. And so the launch window is from 2130 uh, UTC to uh, August 10th at 0130 UTC. And so Wallops' YouTube site will be providing live coverage. So then after that, on the 10th, uh, we have the launch possibly of a G-Lean 1. We have some sort of launch. We, the payload and the launch vehicle are not yet confirmed, but the payload would be a G-Lean 1 and some unconfirmed number of those. It could be possibly 10 or more new uh, G-Lean 1 satellites, which are Earth observation satellites. We've seen those before. So it could be launching on a Long March 6, which uh, would stand to reason, but there's no confirmation of that yet. Uh, this will be launching with a launch window of uh, 0443 UTC to 0521 UTC from Launch Complex 16 in Taiwan. So maybe, maybe not as far as the launch vehicle and payload. <laughs> Okie doke. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And so with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Colin, Chris, Deskin Miller, The Greek, Leon Running Man, Kenton, and Delta V for joining our recording session and helping us make production burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.